MakeReel specializes in creating immersive learning solutions across a range of technologies. To download their latest academic paper on how to turn learners into activists, visit makereel.co.uk slash activists. Hello, I'm Kate Fitzgerald from the Learning Hack team, welcoming you to a new episode of Great Minds on Learning. In this highly acclaimed series, Professor Donald Clark, internationally famous author, blogger and entrepreneur, joins John Helmer to explore two and a half thousand years of thought and theorising about learning from the Greeks to the geeks. This time, we explore an impulse that is deeply rooted in our nature as human animals, the compulsion to play games. Donald and John discuss the theorists who have found this to be fundamental to our culture and to learning. And if you thought computer gaming was just an amusing waste of time, well, listen on. So welcome to this episode of Great Minds on Learning. I'm here as ever with my good friend, Professor Donald Clark. And this time we're taking on the topic of games in learning. We've called the episode gamification, really as a flag of convenience to sail under. It's a, a word with high recognition factor at the moment. But I'm conscious of the fact that it's also a term gamification that has some unfortunate resonances in the learning world. There's been, a, and beyond actually, there's been a lot of criticism of learning programs or HR interfaces which attempt to hype up a dull user experience with a superficial glitz of game-like elements like tokens or badges for completing particular user tasks, leaderboards, etc., adding a sometimes spurious element of competition um, and it's gamification is very widespread, goes well beyond learning. Fitness apps do a lot of the same kind of stuff. You know, I, I get very irritated as a cyclist with the biking ads that um, uh, have a very competitive element to them, to them when really what you want to do is go on a bike and visit country pubs. Um, at the other extreme, there are currents of thought uh, in learning and in philosophy generally that see play as an integral part of animal behavior and thus as we're animals of human behavior and thus the key to how we all learn from early year onwards. Um, it, it can go even deeper than that. Wittgenstein wrote that games of a certain sort, which he calls language games, are integral to how we derive meaning from language. So there is kind of an element of play at the very basis of our understanding of language. So surely it must be fundamental to learning. Uh, closer to home in the last uh, couple of decades, we've had games-based learning, serious games, games with purpose. Um, I find those kind of terms a little uh, pretentious, really. <laughs> but, um, but you know, that that's kind of a part of the e-learning landscape. Um, so what I'm summing up here, Donald, is it's quite a wide field. So this could be either a very narrow discussion, we could stick to gamification, or it could be an extremely wide ranging, uh, slightly abstract one. Um, so Donald, I think we badly need you at the beginning here to stake out the ground for us, please. Well, I think that's right. That was a good summary, actually. I think, first of all, we should start with this wide spectrum uh, including the word play almost, play in games. And I think we'll do that when we come to Husinger, the big, the real foundation stone theorist behind this, who has a very good wide definition of that. We'll, we'll come to that when we discuss him. But I think you were right in teasing out something interesting there, the sort of genus face aspect of gaming and gamification, which are two separate things really in, the, in both in the literature and the way we think about this. Uh, but I, I think it's certainly the case that there are those who are sort of almost like, uh, zealots for gamification, you know, the written books on the subject and so on, and see it as a, an incredibly powerful vehicle for learning. Uh, and then there are others who are far more skeptical and think that uh, really what the net result of all this is largely a lot of, sort of Pavlovian, you know, collecting coins and rubies type uh, mm -hmm. extrinsic motivation. So that genus-faced aspect of that, I'm sure we'll discuss in detail. But I think it's nice, I think you're right in and, and, and prompting me to start with the widest possible spectrum first, because this goes back, you know, the whole concept of play and sport and games goes back to the Greeks. It's deeply embedded in our culture. So, you know, you have people like Heraclitus and Plato, as we are Schiller and people discussing play games 
you know, as part of our culture, as you know, as something incredibly important and deeply human in that sense. But the first, the first, I mean, just sort of tracing it back a little bit, the first big spurt in terms of games and learning, I think, comes in the 19th century when you're wargaming. And uh, this goes back to the Kriegspiel uh, sort of movement where, uh, that's 19th century, where people like Molke, German general, was using board games and little iron figures to actually gameplay battles, impending battles, and so on. Uh, but really, I mean, we can... We can say with certainty what really happened here is that in the 1980s, we had this Cambrian explosion of the games industry, the computer games industry. That was in the 80s. And then it had another massive explosion in the 90s with Doom and Quake when suddenly it all became 3D, sprung into life and action. So suddenly you had these incredibly sophisticated 3D games in the 1990s. And of course, that, that then washed through uh, for the last 20 years, certainly, right through to an incredible array of, of games available on your smartphone, and then literally hundreds of millions of people on games that most adults have never looked at or know about, Fortnite, uh, Roblox, Minecraft. You know, it's this new generation of young kids who, who have lived there and, you know, spent hundreds of hours, in a sense, in the, those 3D worlds. So mm. I think the game thing, the games phenomenon has exploded in technology bigger than the movies, as they often say, massive global phenomenon. It almost surprised everyone. You know, it seems normal now, but it's certainly the scale of it has surprised us. And that's why it was natural that it would come over from the consumer side to the learning side. Uh, and of course you have this distinction, I think it's important just before we start between games and gamification. Hmm. I think that's quite an important distinction just before we get going with some of the theorists in this. I mean, games are really the full, full on, a full game to deliver a learning experience. I think that that's quite clear. Uh, and that can be everything from a, a full drill and practice game right through to this full blown 3D multiplayer, multi-user simulation type game, and then everything in between. It's a full on game in other words. It, and, and in practice, they tend to be much simpler. They tend to be a bit hokey a lot of the time, you know, little sort of games embed that uh, learning experience design teams have built, not really games designer uh, people. And sometimes that tells, you know, they can be a bit, you know, a bit simplistic, one might say. Then there's, so that's games. Gamification is something quite different in a sense. That's, that's using the mechanics of games to enhance the learning experience. So that's uh, more like uh, the sort of cherry on the cake as opposed to the whole cake itself. Uh, Nick Pelling, uh, programmer, games guy, British guy way back, he, he, he coined that phrase, gamification. But uh, it's taking games techniques and applying them to non-game learning. You know, that, I think that, that that's quite clear. The gamification. It, 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 it feels it, like something slapped on, as it were, yeah, after the fact, it, rather than something being integral to the design. I think that's right. I think you said it, John. It was often perceived as adding fun. <laughs> you know, mm. uh, you know that, that that's the sort of thing. Uh, often scoring the collection of tokens, coins, you know, little hearts or something, or badges or leaderboards. But that's all to do with extrinsic motivation, which is its big weakness in many ways, as the literature shows. Uh, it's relatively easy to implement, and that's why you see a lot of it. But actually, it turns out that the pedagogic strengths of real games are very different from that. They're more to do with intrinsic motivation, as we'll okay. see. So I think that's uh, yeah. a reasonable survey at the beginning there. I was going to ask, do, do you need to um, explain that, that difference between intrinsic and extrinsic, or will that come out later? Yeah, I think, well, that's, uh, I mean, in, in many ways, it's quite straightforward. You know, the idea that, you know, personal agency, internal motivation uh, pushes you forward through a learning experience, as opposed to that's pushing you as uh, a self, as opposed to extrinsic motivation, which tends to be something in the outside world, like money offered to salespeople, or, or little tokens and games you see, or going up a leaderboard, they're all extrinsic to the mind. They're okay. something that pulls you forward. So let's plunge in, beginning with uh, Husinger, uh, Johann Husinger, 1872 to 1945, uh, significant dates, as we'll see. Um, Husinger gives us a place to start here. He's a Dutch historian born in Groningen. Uh, I played a 
rock festival there once, became Professor of General and Dutch History at Groningen University in 1905, having previously started as a student of Indo-European languages. He wrote his doctoral thesis on the role of the jester in Indian drama. And um, I was going to think about a, a convoluted joke here about playing the Joker, but um, very few people remember that old British TV game show from the 70s. So I won't. Moved to a post at Leiden University. He was alarmed by the rise of national socialism in Germany. And this is where the dates are significant. Hussiger wrote works of cultural criticism, uh, alarmed by that, it, it kind of pushed him towards that. And it was criticism of his country's German occupiers in 1942, uh, during the Second World War, that led to his being detained by the Nazis and then banned from Leiden. He couldn't go back there. And very sadly, he never lived to see the end of Nazi rule. Donald, I'm guessing that it's his groundbreaking work, Homo Ludens, uh, to which you want to draw our attention here. So here's your start for 10. What yeah. does that title mean and what does it tell us about learning? Yeah, that, that's right. This is like this is a brilliant book uh, and it's a great place to start this uh, to give us a solid basis in which we can actually discuss the literature and learning theory around games and gamification. But it, it's interesting, Homo Ludens is the title and the subtitle is interesting because it, it, the subtitle is a study of play, the play element in human culture. So this is all about the role in which play and games uh, it, it, is deeply embedded in all human culture. And this is, this is a really interesting, very wide place to start, but it's good because it gives us a sort of definition to start. Homo ludens, what did he mean by ludens here? And he, he chose the Latin title, uh, a bit like Homo habilis, handyman, or Homo sapiens, knowing man. Homo ludens is sort of the playful man, you know, or a playful species. Uh, and this is quite broad, a broad meaning in Latin to me, not just, not just games, of course, but also play, sport, practice, you know, it's a, it's a sort of loose, playful, playing type word. So that's a great place to start. But what he does in the book is quite nicely, it really is like quite, really very, very fresh, you know, his definition, because he has these five criteria by which he defines the notion of ludens or play or games. The first, the, the first one that is sort of free, free and freeing, in other words, it, it, it's separate from society, you know? It's separate from ordinary life. And it's not ordinary or real life. Games do not reflect real life. They're something with their own intrinsic uh, sort of set of rules. And if you break those rules, that, that's regarded as almost immoral. Uh, there's a whole lot of rituals dressing up for, uh, for games. I mean, you know, this weekend, uh, here in Brighton, when we beat Chelsea four one, right. <laughs> uh, you had, Sorry, you had thirty thousand people all dressed up in in blue and white. You had thirty thousand people in the stadium screaming "Blue Murder" for ninety minutes. A team all dressed up. You know, there's a whole a whole societal context to this. It's an incredibly important cultural phenomenon. It creates this sense of here's this notion of it creating a sense of so almost its own internal order. A game or play or sport. And interestingly, it's divorced from sort of material or profit interest. I mean, you might say, okay, football players earn a lot of money, but that's actually not the point. The point he's making is that as a cultural phenomenon, it's a sort of hermetically sealed and absolutely fascinating thing. You know, play is serious. Is it, well, play's not serious, but it's taken seriously in culture. You know, that's, that, that's his real point here. Yeah. Encourages us to, to play, have this freedom away from ordinary life, but within the bounds of strict rules. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the, he sees the breaking of those rules. Why are the breaking of those rules in sport such a serious matter? But I, I think one thing I would add there is on his definition is that he widens play out to things like music and dance, even the law. So a contested trial, for example, he sees play in that, uh, you know, uh, uh, the accused and the de uh, the accused and the defence, prosecution and defence. He sees yeah. games in war. He says sees it in the play of words, even in metaphor, poetry, literature, novels. And I was a much more deeply embedded cultural phenomenon than I had imagined before I had read that book. Really illuminating definition in in the book itself. Yeah, this brings to mind the words of a of another thinker, famous thinker, um, the football manager Bill Shankly. He said, yes. um, football is not a matter of life and death, 
it's far more important than that. I wonder myself whether that distinction of players being kind of roped off from the, the rest of the world and therefore that's what allows it to have its kind of vitality, if, if we can really hold to that. If somebody's a pro tennis player, for instance, that has effects on their livelihood, surely. And, and really a game of tennis is, it is the real world as far as their earning capability and material survival, you know, or a Formula One driver or you know, an, an elite sportsman. And that, yeah. that mixture, be, that, that kind of divide between amateur and professional is is very firmly held and, and very important, uh, you know, like pro golfers. Yeah, that's right. I mean, sport has two big roots in Western culture, certainly. One is the Olympics, of course, yeah. where, it was, where it was deeply rooted in a religious phenomenon. Great and, skin. you know, yeah. every four years, everybody downed their arms and so on and so forth. But an incredibly important cultural roots. Huizinga discusses that. And then secondly, between about 1850 and 1870, England plays this huge role here. You, so you have the Industrial Revolution. Lots of workers have the weekend off. This is important. And sport becomes something that is both played and spectated. On uh, you know, It becomes a mass spectacle. So you have these literally 50, 100,000 people watching football matches, rugby matches, playing cricket. All those games are invented in this period, modern mm -hmm. games. That flushes through into America and... And, and spreads around the whole world. You know, the whole world is enveloped with football now. We're just about to hit the World Cup. So, but you made an interesting point there. So that, that objection there, interestingly, Huizinga tackles that in his book, even though it was written oh. back in the 1930s. Uh, and as you rightly said, the book was written two years after the Nazi Olympic Games. Very important. Which depressed him no end. And his yeah. book, in a sense, was a response to that. So what he says here is that actually what's happening here is is that play or sport and sport, remember that's a subset of that, is losing its real function in culture and that it's drifting away from its co cultural role. It's becoming more instrumental, more, you know, more, uh, more commercial, one might say. And also, it, it gets wrapped up with politics and the tyranny of dogma and ideology. You know, we're off, off to Qatar for the World Cup. Yeah. You around that because yeah. clearly, clearly that was bought by. An ol a theocratic oligarchy, and <laughs> they paid money for it, and the rest of the world caved in. He would have regarded that with disdain. Yes. Uh, and so I think uh, it's a point well made, John. I think we, the danger is that we take something that is a real deep and fantastic aspect of the culture, distort it, and turn it towards other goals. But that's Huizinga's point. Play and games is not that and should not be that. Now we come to James Paul G, uh, born 1948, still among us, a California-born researcher in psycholinguistics, discourse analysis, sorry, discourse analysis, sociolinguistics, bilingual education and literacy. Uh, retired now, but his most recent post was as the Mary Lou Fulton Pro Presidential Professor of Literacy Studies at Arizona State University. Previously, he was a faculty affiliate of the Games Learning and Society Group at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a, mem a member of the National Academy of Education. So um, learning credentials there and very obviously talking about games and learning. His early education, I'm working backwards now just for a change, playing it up, you know, was at uh, University of California at Santa Barbara and Stanford. Uh, he's done some really interesting work on discourse communities, situated language, new literacies, and identity theory. But I guess we're going to focus on his work on games. Donald, for an additional 10 points, tell us about him. Yeah, right. Okay, well, I mean, he's a professor of, uh, in the School of Education. So in the early 2000s, we have Prensky, uh, who will discuss Mark Prensky. Yeah. Uh, and James Gee, it's no accident that they come around in 2001, 2003 or so on, because that's when the internet starts to take off. That's when gaming starts to be realized in learning. Actually, there were plenty of us, myself included, who were using games on non-online uh, technology like uh, CDI, laser vision discs. That had been going for a good 20 years before that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, my first game was 1985. I, I was programming games on, on Commodore 64 and so on. So I think it had, a, it had a, a genealogy before this. But the first theorists who come on the field are early 2000s. No accident, because the games thing becomes quite a big deal. Uh, well, it had by that time, you know, we had Doom and Quake, and it was a massive industry. Mm. Now, he's interesting because as a professor of education, he comes out and he does something quite clever, I think. 
which is, I, I think he deserves praise for this, is he really works hard to identify the, the, this array of useful learning skills that you can pick up by playing games. Forget about games designed for learning, just playing games themselves. So he, he lists out these 36 principles, a really nice book, what video games have to teach us about literacy and learning. So, you know, there are some things within, within games. And the, the 36 are absolutely fascinating. You know, some of them, if you can remember, is, is, what, is you know that notion that you're an active participant and incredibly yeah. important personal agency in learning. The fact that games are, are sort of complex things that you have to master competence, go through levels. You can take, you know, risk is stripped out. You can, you can actually uh, do things in simulations without dying or spending a huge amount of money. You've got this extension of engagement within a game. That's another one of these principles. And mm. loads of on-task practice which we all know is largely ignored in one-off sheep dip type learning things in classrooms and so on. Yeah. And that notion, it teases out this notion of games being challenging, you know, the overcoming these obstacles through levels, not too hard, not too easy, loads of routes to success. So the complexity, you know, we'll go all these principles, the complexity is interesting. And then also problem solving, reading, all the things you have to do within a game are interesting that, and then maybe some tail end stuff that's interesting. He also mentions for the first time, but it's incredibly important, is the notion of transfer. In other words, you can do things in games and transfer them uh, and apply them in other games or in the real world. Right. And then there's maybe some more expansive stuff about uh, literacies. Uh, it gets a bit tied up in semiotics, I think, on that, on that yeah. front. But, but I think it's an expansion of cultural knowledge is interesting. And then also I th what I like is very early on, he recognizes the social component in games. The mm. notion that, you know, when you're playing a game, you're often playing with other people. When you finish, you talk about games. There are websites all about the game. And it's a highly, highly social environment. So I think I think he recognizes that it was personalized, chunk, problem solving, all the acquisition of skills and knowledge is an right. important dimension of games. So with his knowledge of, of learning theory and um, all, all the stuff that we're covering in this series and so on and, and, and stuff you've read and know about, he then applies that to the experience of um, computer games and finds that actually it's all in there yeah. and, and more, that, 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 that these are kind of rich learning experiences. And I think it's interesting, this kind of, that you talk about the, the explosion of games as a phenomenon and the numbers really are quite extraordinary, but in a way, in a sense, it's hidden in society. It doesn't kind of break through to official culture until you get sort of um, shock horror stories on the news on Radio 4 uh, and the BBC saying, you know, all the kids are kind of rotting their brains by, <laughs> you know, doing video games. You know, it, it's a panic that comes up again and again with technology. But games has been a particular focus for this and how it drives um, people to sit in their bedrooms and be antisocial and the rest of it. Or maybe no, you know, maybe they're, they're, they're kind of organizing raids and uh, learning stuff which will equip them to be, um, you know, head of practice at uh, Accenture in 10 years' time or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. So is that all there is really to say about Paul G? Although, you know, it, it well, no, a lot I mean, he, he goes on and writes, I, I think that's right. This, the, the literature then expands out into these ethical issues, and that's an interesting line of inquiry in itself, because by and large, the idea that, you know, all these young, quiet lads are sitting down and playing violent games, and they all come out and be, uh, you know, serial killers, <laughs> it's like, it was always slightly ridiculous. And of course, the literature shows that this is far from being true. Uh, you know, these are, as Susan said, almost hermetically sealed experiences here. Actually, the things you pick up are, are not, how to behave violently, but loads of other really interesting things, how to behave, actually how to behave and work with a team <laughs> and mm. socialize with other people is a far more powerful thing. But I think you've teased something out here, which is a nice bridge to the, our next theorist, and that's Mark Prinsky, because you said yeah. something interesting there. It remains hidden. Now, why does it remain hidden? By and large, because it was practiced by the young who have less of a voice, uh, certainly in academia, let's say. So a lot of academic angst around the ethics of games, mostly yeah. by a lot of people who didn't play play games or didn't really fully really understand what they were, I, I suspect. Uh, and then even in the uh, even in the uh, in the learning experience design or instructional design world, most of the people who are who are employed in that world are not really games players, but they've had to design games because they feel it was necessary. But Prinsky hits upon something which is 
oft derided, I should say, this distinction between digital immigrants, of course, and digital natives. Yeah. And, and that's a very early book. That was even before Guy. That was in his digital game-based learning. And I think I think people throw that distinction out at their peril. But, you know, there's a sort of dismissiveness of it. Well, kids mm. don't know much about it. You know, they're actually not very good in computers. Really? <laughs> they're not very good at what you want them to do, uh, like read novels or write essays or whatever, you know. But actually... When the truth comes to the shove, the, the two distribution curves in game playing, the demographics of that have been very, very clear for a long time. Young people, by and large, play games. Hardly anybody I know, do you know anyone who's, as an adult or our age, who's on Roblox, uh, uh, Minecraft, or plays Fortnite? Not really. Only for professional reasons. So Mark Prensky, born 1946. Uh, there can't be many people who've worked in learning technologies, particularly over the last couple of decades, who haven't heard of Mark Prensky and his landmark work, Digital Game-Based Learning, published in 2001. I've probably seen him speaking at conferences. It's on the circuit. His other big hit is something you um, alluded to there, Donald, it, which is it's even more famous than he is, the contrasting terms digital native and digital immigrant. I, yeah. I was at an old a reunion of old school friends at the weekend um, and was able to drop the name of Prensky because someone brought up this thing, you know, our kids, they're all digital natives and we're digital immigrants. So they're, they're of an age with me, all these people. It's a strange experience, been in a room full of people exactly the same age as you. And um, it, it experienced that kind of fault line that, that passes through generationally. But they nobody knew who Prensky was, but his term has really gone into the, you know, in, in, into general discourse. He's a New Yorker who started his career as a teacher in Harlem. He holds degrees from Oberlin, Middlebury College, Yale, and Harvard Business School. In the 80s, he had a good 80s, he worked as a corporate strategist and product development director with the Boston Consulting Group. In the 90s, for Bankers Trust on Wall Street, where he created game-based training for financial traders and started an internal division Corporate Gameware later spun out as Games to Train with a number in the middle there. So a practitioner as well as a theorist of games-based learning. Donald, before you tell us all about Prensky, I can give you an extra 20 points, bonus points, if you can tell me what Prensky has in common with the pop artist Sting. <laughs> hey, hey. Now, the only thing that comes to mind is I've seen, I know Mark and I've seen him speak often and he is a, a boisterous New Yorker. But it's yeah. not it's not something to do with that song, uh, An Englishman in New York, is it? I, I'm, I'm guessing, but no idea. Uh, unfortunately, I'm going to have to pass that over to myself um, and I'll get those 20 points. It's the lute. They both <laughs> play the lute. <laughs> I think I should get a bonus point for that sort of that reasonable guess there. Yeah, right, yeah. Okay. All right. I'll give you, I'll give you one point. Okay. So, okay. Uh, Prensky and Games, obviously a huge figure in, in, in our world. Yeah, I think, well, of course, yeah, you said something interesting there, that digital immigrants, digital uh, native idea got into common parlance. Yeah. It got into the language almost. I'm sure it's in dictionaries now or whatever. Mm. And Prensky was the, the guy who, who, who coined those phrases, as it were. And I think they're often misunderstood as if, as if there was, this was some absolute Manichaean distinction between the two things and that there was no, no common ground, that they were mutually and logically exclusive. But that's not what he meant. His general point was that younger people tend to grow up with a much richer, more complex technological ecosystem. You know, they grew up with computer smartphones, texting, searching, and of course, games, consoles, and gaming. Then mm. they they're quite at ease thrashing around in software and troubleshooting when things go wrong. That's a Twitch generation thing. So I think that digital natives thing has some uh, actually has some purchase, and it, mm. especially as applied to gaming. Remember, he's talking about gaming, not not general computer skills like using Excel. That wasn't his point, but people often use that as an argument against them, a bit unfairly, I think. And then secondly, you know, digital immigrants. Uh, who have had to, in a sense, open the door and enter that world, dip mm. into that world, because they, they don't come to it with that experience when they were very, very young, uh, where they had more plasticity in their brains and so on. And so we're learning about this stuff later in life. And then one that's often forgotten that didn't get in there was he also has this term digital aliens, which I like. 
And those are those who doggedly and stubbornly remain completely outside the system and refuse to buy a smartphone or whatever, you know. And uh, we've all met, we all know people like that, I think, as well. So, but I think it's a useful distinction. And it's, you know, to go back to the mathematics of this, it's not mutually exclusive. These are such two sort of distribution curves that clearly overlap. There are some people who are older who clearly do play games, but by and large, if you really look at the marketing and numbers around things like Fortnite, Roblox, and Minecraft, this is a very young audience. Hmm. Uh, and therefore, I think, if anything, the digital native, digital immigrant distinction has become more acute. You know, there's less overlap in the two distribution curves because of the rise of these types of games where more kids have more smartphones. They have, uh, they're in these worlds. They're not only playing games, they're creating their own games We'll come to this later, but this is a big shift in the market as well. Uh, Minecraft is a, a, a great example, but so is Fortnite and Roblox. Mm. So, yeah. So Prensky um, did, did a lot of work applying game logic to learning. Um, one thing that kind of I, I was thinking about when you were talking about G was, G seemed to be saying that it, it's not that there is useful stuff in computer games that we can take to help us do better learning. It's that playing computer games is learning. Yeah. I thought that that was really interesting. Is Prensky kind of slapping lipstick on a pig? Is that the, you know, the essentialist nature of, of the enterprise when he's doing kind of um, e-learning game-based packages for financial traders? Do you, how, how possible is it, do you think, really to apply the logic of computer games to a learning program? Yeah, now this is where the debate academically gets quite interesting because what Prensky does, he doesn't really do this, I did it to a bit, is he says, well, it's not just the playing of games that exist as games. Can we take some of that magic sauce, the magic dust of games, and sprinkle it on learning experiences and turn them into much better, more effective, efficacious learning experiences? Now, right. Prensky thinks you can. Sometimes calls this digital wisdom and stuff, but he thinks that, you know, that, that, the education actually strips out context relevance. You know, it doesn't pay attention to what the audience really needs. And that games have suddenly given us this context, uh, the ability to transfer and all sorts of additional advantages in learning, especially workplace learning, but also in education. Uh, uh, and that even the technology that swept in behind into the digital immigrant population, sorry, the digital native population, like searching for Google, using uh, Wikipedia to look up things in text, or YouTube, if you want to look at a how-to video, all that comes into play. These, this is real technology that people really do use in a learning context. You know, mm. almost every learner uses search, Wikipedia, YouTube, audio podcasts now, social media, all that stuff. And what Prensky is saying is, listen, guys, this is here, this has arrived. Everybody's doing this anyway in learning, but if you want to, so informally, let's say informal learning, on formal learning, you can also use these techniques to, to, to spruce up, spice up, as it, as it were, learning experiences. And so in his, this is all for him about motivation, really. He thinks that the main point of use of games is just motivating people using game techniques to improve learning. So I, I think Prensky brings that to the party. He was less... Uh, he was more academically looking for the principles within games. Prensky is looking at how we can really take the potency of a game and gamification and apply it to learning experiences. Uh, and this is where it gets quite complicated because there's also criticisms of this as well, of course, that, that no doubt we'll, we'll come to. But he's a key player here. You know, he, he, was, he spent 20 years really batting away on this one at conferences, writing books on the subject and so on. And I think he brought credibility to the notion that they have some purchase in the, in the learning world, whether it's work-based learning, higher education even, or, or education. Your mention of motivation uh, there brings us on quite neatly to the next couple of theorists here. Richard M. Ryan and Scott Rigby. Um, no real dates for these people, but they're, they're contemporaneous, I suppose we'd say they're around now. They're less well known in our particular part of the forest, perhaps, uh, but self-determination theory developed by Ryan with Edward L. D. 
DC, I think, I'm not sure how you pronounce that. It is very well known, uh, generally in kind of uh, management circles, I think. Mm. Richard Ryan was named by Science Watch as one of the leading theorists of human motivation, ranking among the top 1% of researchers in the field with professorships, professorships at the Australian Catholic University and University of Rochester. He's among the most cited researchers in psychology and social scientists today, having authored over 400 papers and books in the areas of human motivation, personality, and psychological well-being. So we're, we're kind of zeroing in on motivation here. Together with Dr. Scott Rigby, an author, behavioral scientist, and founder CEO of Motivation Works, um, no points for guessing what they do. He authored the book Glued to Games, How Video Games Draw Us In and Hold Us Spellbound, and an important paper, The Motivational Pull of Video Games, A Self-Determination Theory Approach. Donald, we do, of course, want to hear what they have to tell us about games and learning, but perhaps it's worth starting with self-determination theory, SDT. All right, okay. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, so Ryan is a key figure here. So Ryan and Desi, we're going to be talking about Ryan and Rigby on relationship yeah. games. But Ryan and Desi originally write their book Self-Determination, Self if I get this right, it's a complicated title, and Intrinsic Motivation and Human Behaviour. Yeah. So that's back in the 80s and 85, I think. And the this this becomes quite a big theory, as you say, in management theory, but it, it focuses on the word you've surfaced here, motivation. What really is happening in games? Why are why is it such a massive industry? Why do people get obsessed and can spend eight hours straight playing games? And of course, they, what they do is almost immediately dismiss the idea. It's just fun, you know. It's about the laugh. No, 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 no. It's something much deeper than this. So Ryan and Desi and the self determination theory uh, empirically research this and find that there are really three things. Now, remember, this theory isn't applying to games at the moment. It's just yeah. a general psychological theory about motivation, which has three big components. The first one is autonomy, that sense of self and agency. You, as an individual, being in control of, of your life and world, uh, being able to take actions uh, as an autonomous human being, whether it's choosing the profession you want to go into, your educational path, being financially independent, you know, that whole notion of autonomy. Uh, something that results in change in the world. The second big one, and this is the really important word, competence. So we have autonomy. Second one is competence. And this is where the overlap and shift into learning and games comes because they identified that when you're playing within a game, actually what you really enjoy is the gameplay and acquiring skills to get up through the levels. You're actually, it's an intense learning experience. This is interesting. That's what motivates people going forward. They're, they're dying, they're suffering from failure, but they're learning knowledge and skills to achieve more autonomy as they go on. And then the third one, which we've touched upon, goes back to Guy and also Frensky, is uh, the social, so connect, connection or, or relatedness, the social connection with other people that could be within the game you're playing as a team, in COD, for example, team, or in uh, even the people you're fighting against, you know, if it's a if it's a casino royale type game, like uh, battle royale game, sorry, uh, like uh, Fortnite, then you know there's a hundred people in there, that, and you're last man or woman standing. But it's still a social context. And then there's all the stuff after the game, you know, that Twitch stuff, all the watching, streaming, people playing games, engaging in websites about games, and so on. So autonomy, competence, and connection are the three big things that Desi and Ryan bring out as a general form of fulfillment in life, which they also which also explains the massive success of gaming. Okay. And so it's uh, really it's Ryan and Rigby who apply SDT yeah. to to the world of games. They yeah. they did quite a bit of work on it. It wasn't just yeah. several papers, was it? Yeah, well they have they, the 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 first the most famous paper was the, the one they wrote on the motivational pool of video games. And that's applying the S SDT or self-determination theory to games. It's about mm. 2006, and that 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 paper is really seminal, as they say. But it, it, what it did was identify the fundamental nature of those three things in games empirically. You know, and I was that's this is what drives games. Let's recognise that the these challenges, stretching your abilities, optimal challenges, and this progression up through levels and learning is fundamental to gaming. That's what mm. they bring to the party. 
But the second book that you mentioned, Glued to Games, is a bit later, but five years later, 2011. Glued to Games is a great book because it does something that people don't like very much. They're absolutely dismissive of fun storytelling and superficial narratives in games. They say mm. you're really missing the point if you think that's what these young people are doing when they're playing games. He said, this is not important at all. The deeper psychological needs, are the experiences through self-determination theory, a sense of autonomy, a sense of acquiring competencies, connectedness, social relatedness, these are the things that matter. And that if you think fun storytelling and superficial narratives matter, think again, because they don't really. They play a quite a, a small role in game playing. This is almost counterintuitive, because I think, you know, going back to Prensky's distinction, I think a lot of digital immigrants think that's what it's about. You see the word fun popping up all the time by mm. people who haven't read any of the literature, I think. But I think uh, I think they scotch that myth, really. And that, that's refreshing because it gives us something solid to go upon. You know, what they're saying is that games are really different from books and TV programs and movies. It's not the narrative or story that matters here. It's the gameplay, the player interactions that matter. Games are an entirely mm. different type of medium here. And that actually, they go further. They say something quite interesting. They say, actually, far from being fun, games are intensely sort of disappointing. You get killed all the time. You respawn. They're frustrating. You get loads of disappointment. But it's that overcoming difficulty. You know, people are not smiling and laughing all the time when they're playing games. It's a very intense experience. And that's why gameplay matters. Hmm. Afterwards, you can have all the fan chat, the video streaming, all that sort of jazz. But uh, uh, what they do is really recommend, uh, they identify the psychological strength of games. Then we can apply that in learning. And of course, that's not what happens because I think actually what happens is people focus on all the fun, extrinsic, Pavlovian, badges, games type stuff, uh, as opposed to the deeper psychological fulfillment criteria and SDT theory. And that's where it all goes wrong. Yeah. This is making me think of our conversation about Nozick and the red pill, blue pill yeah. thing, that what people want out of life is challenge and yeah. uh, and learning yeah. and progressing, moving forward through difficulty to fulfillment rather than just to be happy and cosseted all, all the time. Are there any other theorists we should mention? It, it does strike me, Donald, we've got quite a, 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 you know, quite a limited sort of group of people this time, which is great for me because it's less... Um, Less <laughs> people to have to kind of look up on Wikipedia. But um, are, are there more people in the field that we should... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is quite a wide range of people. I think there are other really serious learning psychologists who have had, are, played an interesting role here. One we've covered in the previous podcast about affective or emotional learning. So Jack Panskett, if you remember our discussion Panset, around him. Yeah, yeah Panskett, I mean, he, 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 he sees... I mean, he, he really surfaces play as a form of social joy, that fundamental primary innate part of our evolutionary and emotional legacy. And then he, of course, he has a sort of taxonomy of emotions, the effective side of learning, which he applies it to as well. The seeking expectancy, along with fear, rage, lust, care, all those sort of things he uncovers, panic, grief. But what's interesting about pain Panksett is he's in line really with uh, with Ryan and Rigby in that he identifies play and seeking. He thinks that play is an incredibly important thing in education and has worked with other researchers in this area. In fact, went as far as saying that some emotional disturbance in children comes because we don't allow them to play enough. We sort of strap them into classrooms eight hours a day when they're five years old. He said, this may be a mistake. And especially, it's interesting work on ADHD. He thinks that the, the ADHD may be caused by the sort of artificial constraining of children at a very young age. That's interesting. And, and so they rebel against this effectively. I mean, this is not Mickey Mouse stuff. There was a lot of papers written on this subject. But I found that really fascinating. But so Panksett's one. And then, of course, another, another person whom we... Uh, we've dealt with before, and that's uh, that, that's I Mihaly mean, uh, Chick sent me high. An extra five freak. points for that. I'm going to give you. <laughs> yeah, always freaks me out. That, uh, I think I missed out the e there. I think it's Chick, uh, Chick sent me high e is the correct pronunciation. So I believe yeah. I'm sure I've got it wrong. You know that uh, yeah. again, professor of education at University of Chicago, and he says focuses on flow, but he also looked at games and learning in this 
front and thought that games did offer an opportunity if they were deep enough and played to the sort of things that Ryan and Rigby were, were talking about, then one could achieve flow and a learning experience that enhanced and allowed deep processing to take place and real acquisition of knowledge and skills. And he isn't talking about little Pavlovian leaderboards or extrinsic motivation. In fact, he's talking about the very opposite. In many ways, he reinforces what Ryan and Rigby says. The games have to be a, a deep, involved experience as opposed to a pool, extrinsic, Pavlovian, behaviourist type experience. And then I think another one, because I think if there's one, only if you only have to read one paper of games, I think this is the one paper you really need to read. And that's by Richard Clark in 2007. Right. Because, uh, and we've covered Richard. Yeah, it's again someone who's already been. That, that's right. Now, he's really about critical task analysis, the formal construction of learning experience and so on. But he wrote a really brilliant paper. It's way back 2007. Now, that's a, lot, a long time ago now. But what he did was a meta-study of the games literature at that time. And to be honest, having followed this since, I don't think much has changed. But first of all, he's incredibly critical of the sort of theory in this area and practice. He thinks that there was, was no clear definition of what constitutes a game. He thought this was a real problem in the research. Uh, uh, and I think that's still true. But more importantly, he went on to crit criticize the research as being insubstantial. And he thought that actually what, what, what he found was that there was a failure in the meta-studies to publish the, the unpublished studies containing no significant gain results. In other words, there tended to be a lot of cherry picking going on here. And that actually a lot of research was showing no significant gain in learning from games. Huh. especially the, the open discovery method that was used in a lot of games. You thought that was less less, less uh, efficacious than direct instruction. And a lot of people, or guided instruction actually was his, his, his rule there. And a lot of people, you know, there's a big debate in education that's been going on for, for ever and a day, of course. But he thought for novice to intermediate learners, open games were incredibly destructive, just letting people thrash around in open environments. And... An interesting conclusion he came to was that learning benefits, when you find some learning benefits in games, he's saying, well, actually, those learning benefits could be the could be the result of other instructional methods anyway, without the extra design and costs and non-game contexts and mm -hmm. so on. So uh, in a sense, he also found that the, the, the gaming could be a real distraction from the learning. And, and when you look at evidence-based instructional methods like direct instruction, you're playing with fire here, really, because the game games may result in less mental effort invested in learning because the user thinks that just playing the game has made learning easy, whereas learning is hard. Mm. <laughs> it's quite a subtle thing, but it, I think it was an important argument in the paper that we are actually doing a disservice here. Interestingly, Neil Postman, who wrote a very famous book called Amusing Ourselves, Ourselves to Death, to he made exactly the same point. He said that actually by introducing this notion that learning is fun and it, let's make it easy, let's play games, you're actually instilling in the learner the idea that it is easy and then they don't make the effort and therefore it's a sort of destructive force in education. And I think there is really something to that. And of course, uh, Ryan and Rigby say that's absolutely right. You have to look for the deeper processing, the deeper facets of games if you're going to get this right. So, brilliant paper. It was called Learning from Serious Games, 2007, Richard Clark. Great paper. I mean, there are plenty of other people. Carl Kapp is really worth mentioning because he's not so much a, a sort of, you know, a learning theorist, but has written some really good practical books, Gamification of Learning Instruction, Play to Learn. The one I quite liked was called, I can't remember the time, it was Gadgets, Games, and Gizmos in, in, in Games and Learning. I, I, so I think, you know, mentioning dispatches for Carl because he spent a, a lifetime doing good work in that, in that area. Uh, and of course, there, there are plenty other people here, uh, but I think it is worth reflecting on the goods and bads here. And I think some of these, okay. some of these people have done that well. Well, we're moving now towards summing up. Scores on the doors. <clears throat> really, I've, I've lost. Uh, I've actually lost track of the score. But that's okay. No problem. Because it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of uh, the actual subject matter, you you you've mentioned some of the good and the bad things about games and gamification. But is it is it worth kind of 
summarizing that briefly before we move yeah, any think, further, what what is good, what is bad about games and gamification for learning? Yeah, I think it is. I, I wrote a whole chapter on this in my book, Learning Experience Design. You know, the do's and the don'ts, but more, also the you know the advantages and disadvantages because mm. clearly it's not a black and white issue. It's a, it's a complex issue and. Games can be good, but games can also be bad. I think on the good side, it was like covered many of those things, especially the Ryan and Rigby theories. You know, that careful progression through levels and acquisition of competencies. Uh, I think it's very close to the Vygotsky zone of proximal development, you know, staying in that zone, as it were. Uh, you've got the acceptance of failure as a method of learning, uh, mm. along with feedback. I think that's just the norm in games. Real-time failure and real-time feedback is a really big game of uh, feature of games. Actually, not much, interestingly, in in the games you see designed uh, in corporate learning, let's say, but in real games it is. Complex mm. environments where practice and transfer can take place and also working in teams. All those are great things, but they require serious games and serious effort and serious design. That's relying on what you may, I suppose I would call that intrinsic pedagogies. Go back to that distinction we made earlier, John. Mm -hmm. Now, we want to turn to the other side. This is where, I mean, we have to be honest here and, and like own up to the fact that just relying on Pavlovian rewards, you know, these extrinsic behavioral rewards, collecting coins, rubies, you know, badges, and that's of less interest to adults. To be honest, I'm not too sure that young kids like it much either because they're used to playing such sophisticated games that they find this a bit hokey. I found that with both my children. Whenever I showed them an educational game, they saw, you got the roll of the eyes and I quite squint going, really, is that it? You know, uh, Because they were so used to things. There's also a big problem with this behaviorist, you know, really Skinnerian view of it, is that you can be quickly habituated out of its effectiveness. You can use these techniques if you want, but actually you become... I, I find this when you've used Duolingo, I quickly yeah. ignore all that stuff. And then it's it's terribly important that you become intrinsically motivated to use it every five minutes every morning, you know, because the external stuff no longer works. It runs out of steam. So that's the yeah. first set of objections, the Pavlovian side. The second big one, which the literature has uncovered quite nicely now, and that's cognitive load. Mm. So the Sweller cognitive load theory, we have a limited working memory. If you flood it with stuff, that hinders learning and of course you have this extra cognitive effort to apply the game learn the rules of the game deal and monitor your gamey stuff uh, uh, that might outweigh any assumed learning advantages so it might hinder rather than help learning and i think that's often ignored if you know if you have to learn the rules apply the rules monitor the rewards that's actually just taking up a whole lot of stuff in your brain that's not being applied to actually the acquisition of knowledge and skills or whatever Comes so, back to that keep it simple thing. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of people are saying keep it simple, don't do the game stuff. Just get rid of that because it's just a hindrance. You know, the the assumed cognitive gain from game actually becomes a cognitive loss because of cognitive load theory. Yeah, so something uh, very powerful, but be careful with it because it work it work for you in certain ways if you do it right, but could actually destroy learning. That's do exactly it. it. Do it and others. You're doing a lot of kind of connections, Donald, here into previous episodes. And so on, which, which the marketing person, I think, is great because it, it means that we get more use of the catalogue. But um, <laughs> can you also collect, connect us uh, now with this subject into something we covered very recently on this podcast, which is VR and the metaverse? Because looking forward to the future, yeah. um, the metaverse he's, just feels like a bit of a gamified environment yeah. all around. Can you make that connection for us? Well, that's right. I mean, the proto-metaverses that do exist, uh, and, and everybody points towards these, are some of some of them I, I've mentioned already, things like VR chat, and uh, there, there are things like uh, Microsoft sim uh, Flight Simulator, for example, it's been around for, you know, decades, which is a full simulation of the entire planet. You can fly all, all sorts of airplanes in a realistic environment with real-time weather. There are guys in the States who actually, when a hurricane comes in, they actually fly up into the hurricane in flight simulator to chase wow. the storm. It's, it's an amazing thing. So we've already had that sort of 3D gaming thing that's been around for a long time, but a bit niche. Of course, we have Google Earth. And Google Earth, I don't know if you've seen some of the latest releases in Google Earth, but it's gone into VR. You have mm. this intense entire globe now that is essentially a metaverse of sorts. But in gaming, what's even more interesting is that you know, things like Fortnite, Roblox, and Minecraft all have 100 million plus people playing them. 
huge numbers of regular users. And that's 3D worlds, but they're not only playing the games, they're building the games. Massive social environments. Kids are hanging around in these worlds because of social reasons. So we're getting a glimpse of how the gaming world, I think, will shape the metaverse because the proto-metaverses are already in existence. Uh, Neruda has just written a nice book on this called Virtual Society, where he makes the same point. Interestingly, he also invokes, like me, uh, the Rigby and Ryan self-determination theory. He thinks that the metaverse will only work if it brings meaningful experiences and fulfillment to people. And that means intrinsic stuff, not just you know, the wonder of looking around the 3D games universe or whatever, or 3D world. Yeah. So I think the metaverse is starting to pick up on this and gaming will be, it will clearly be a key feature in, uh, in metaverse because it already is. Some of those I've mentioned, Flight Simulator, Google Earth, uh, you know, virtual worlds, those big virtual gaming environments, 3D games are absolutely the norm. The metaverse is already here in that sense. So if we're going to look for where we can use the metaverse in learning, then gaming, I think, will certainly be one. And this is because, so I'm writing a book on this, been commissioned to write a book on VR and the metaverse and learning. Okay. And so looking at some key learning theory here, we've already covered some of it, self-determination theory, I think is important, but you've also got a whole load of theory around context. So we know that context is important in learning. Again, we touched on this in a previous episode. You know that notion that you learn better when you learn in the context where you're going to apply that knowledge and skills. There is also the notion of transfer. You need to be able to, that's why flight simulators work. You need to do it in a realistic environment where you can take those skills and apply them in the real world. This is the sort of thing that the metaverse, VR and the metaverse does and will offer with ever increasing levels of sophistication. And so I, uh, I myself think that uh, that oft ignored area of learning, learning by doing, which by and large is wiped out in, in, in school and university, we've actually we've absolutely just got sliced out all vocational learning because you do hardly anything. Uh, and universities certainly are just massively and intrinsically theoretical and not practical. Uh, and then, of course, in the workplace, it's the same classroom courses, all that e-learning, you know, in hours and hours and hours of theoretical stuff, all very texty and graphics. Are you learning to do things in the real world? Is it actually really related to performance? Perhaps we have a, a chance here of having this gear shift towards what is really needed. Mm. Uh, and that's and certainly workplace learning, but I think it's terribly important that we teach people how to do things in the real world, in the workplace. The workplace, guys, and, uh, is a real place. It's a 3D place. <laughs> Why is the learning so flat and texty, you know? Uh, I think this is where we've gone all, gone all wrong. I spent my whole life fighting for vocational learning, and perhaps we have a glimpse of how it may be reinstated using technology. On that note, uh, I, I think we we have to draw to a close. Although obviously, as always, there's a lot more we could say. Um, as I say, I completely lost uh, track of the scores, but we'll be looking to see how we did in terms of the downloads, likes and shares on um, LinkedIn <laughs> and Twitter and, and so forth. And that's all. We, we'll get the results of this and see if we really did win gamification this time. Uh, <laughs> it, it's been a big win for me to do this. Thank you very much, Donald. Uh, I hope everybody else has got a lot out of it too. No problem, John. A joy as always. Thanks. Bye. Great Minds on Learning comes from the Learning Hack team and is produced by John Helmer. Sound edit is by Isaac Peacock. Social media by Jay Curtis. Graphics by David O'Connor. The podcast is based on a series of blog posts written by Donald Clark and we'd like to thank Donald for his kind collaboration in this project. Next time, Donald and John explore the influence that the great religions of the world and their leaders have had on learning. Join us, won't you?